0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Victor Lee about his study of Nixon's period working as an attorney in the 1960s, entitled Nixon in New York, How Wall Street Helped Richard Nixon Win the White House. Victor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me,
1: Mark. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, we appreciate having you uh, take some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, I, I live in Chicago. Um, I am a legal journalist by trade. Uh, I'm currently an assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal uh, and chronically in the business of law and technology and the legal profession.
0: What was it that led you to undertake a study of Richard Nixon uh, generally and, and specifically his uh, time working as an attorney?
1: Well, I've always been interested in Richard Nixon. I mean, I think he's a fascinating figure in American history, someone who, you know, really should have gone down in history as one of our greatest presidents. But you know, through, through his, uh, you know, inner demons or, you know, outer demons or whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, ended up being the only president to ever resign from office in disgrace. And, you know, I, there's something I, I always found very compelling about that dichotomy someone who, you know, ha- had the world in the palm of his hand, but then, you know, for whatever reason, you know, um, felt, you know, it either fell away from his hand or he let it go or how you know, use whatever metaphor you want, but basically, you know, <laughs> he blew it. So, um, you know, so I've always been fascinated with him. I've, I've, you know, I've always enjoyed reading biographies of, of, of him and just reading you know, and talking to people who knew him and things along those lines. Uh, but the, the, uh, impetus for this project came when, um, when I was working, uh, uh, um, and when, and, you know, back when I first started working as a legal reporter, um, I was working in New York for, um, uh, uh, the American lawyer magazine and, you know, they cover the world of big law firms, which, you know, you're talking about, you know, the top 200 or so law firms based on revenue, based on, um, you know, attorney headcount, really in terms of money. Um, you know, you're talking about the really big firms that handle all the big cases and handle all the big matters and whatnot. And, um, so I was interested in sort of like what Nixon did when he was at his law firm, you know, in 19- from 1962 until 1968 when he became president. Um, I was interested in kind of like finding out more about just what he what he did at the firm like what you know what was his you know, what were his tasks there what kind of lawyer he was and I didn't really find too much on the market that, or you know uh, uh, out of the books and you know scholarship that was available I didn't really see too much that dealt with that so much I mean there were some things that had been written about his time there um, but really it was you know there wasn't like one book that kind of covered all of it like as far as like you know uh, his time at the firm and what he did and how he kind of used that to uh, help become help himself become president in 1968 uh, To get himself ready for another run for the White House So that was sort of why um, I decided to write this just because I thought you know, it was an interesting story It's something that hasn't really been covered too much and, and it was something that I thought was worth telling
0: You bring to the book a very interesting uh, Perspective most people who write about Nixon write about him uh, from the standpoint of their their politicians their historians their professional biographers and given your familiarity with the law, you can speak to that aspect of his life uh with considerable insight. And and, and that's one of the reasons why I I found your book so uh unusual, which is that you show it's not just about Nixon as it is about how he draws upon that period of his life to serve as that springboard in a way that that People such as uh, historians, such as say Stephen Ambrose, have not written about in, in from quite the same way. In quite the same way.
1: Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, I, that was that was kind of what I was going for. I mean, I find that you know just dealing with lawyers all the time. I mean, you know, um, I've I've been a legal journalist for about eight years now. Um, you know, working for both um, you know the American Lawyer magazine and then Law Technology News, and then now I'm at the ABA Journal. So, you know, having to deal with lawyers all the time and talking to them and um, interacting with them and whatnot. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to kind of see, you know, cause I, I my background is that, you know, I, uh, I did go to law school. I did practice for a little while, uh, before I decided to switch careers. And it, it, you know, one thing that they tell you in law school is we don't, you know, we don't teach you about the law. We teach you how to think like a lawyer, uh, which seems kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a weird thing, you know, at first glance, because, you know, I mean, you're, you're training to be part of a profession, but, um, but Uh, you know that's sort of the way the pedagogy has been you know for a while now and the idea that you have to like change the way you think and change the way you approach problems and change the way you analyze things you know there is there is something kind of compelling about that i don't know if it's worth you know sinking you know (laughs) several hundreds of thousand dollars in to try to learn how to do it but um you know but for the people who are very good at it and people who are um, you know, who, the, who, who it comes kind of naturally to, you know, it, it, it does give it, – it, it gives people like me and other people a kind of a very fascinating insight into the way they think, into the way they act, into the way they do things. And with Nixon, I mean, you know, he's someone who, you know, even though um, he had been in politics for pretty much most of his adult life, he did, you know, he he did go to a, a, to a, to a good law school. He did practice law for a little bit. He did, um, you know, bring a lot of those skills. As far as um, you know arguing his case, you know making making you know learning how to persuade people, learning how to like approach problems and breaking it down so that people will understand and whatnot and those were skills that really translated um, when he you know would be on the stump uh, or when he was trying to you know win votes or when he was trying to uh, appeal to to voters and whatnot. I mean he wasn't the most natural campaigner, obviously he was I mean we all know the caricature of him being kind of awkward. Being, <laughs> you know, you know, the big sweating guy next to next to the movie star John Kennedy, who, you know, uh, <laughs> had the, the five o'clock shadow and the, the, uh, you know, the shifty eyes and like the big nose and whatnot. I mean, that's, that's sort of the caricature of him. But, you know, you don't get to that far in life by not knowing how to interact with people, not knowing how to deal with people, not knowing how to speak to their concerns and how to, you know, even charm them to an extent. And so I found that like a lot of the skills that, he drew upon as a lawyer, you know, were very, very much transferable
0: as far as like his political career. I think a lot of that comes out when you open the book, you, you begin with his, uh, Defeat in 1962, he loses the uh, California gubernatorial election uh, that year to Pat Brown, who was running for a second term. And you have him at something of a crossroads. He had just lost to John Candy two years before. He had undertaken legal work uh, that you describe in the book. He he had uh, he had gotten a uh, position at a, at a legal firm. He was he was a Working for them, he was very, he was successful in that respect. But he, you describe him as sort of having an oar in the water, in the political waters, uh, from 1960 till 1962, and yet with 1962, you have that. Famous statement uh, to the press the next morning about how this will be his last press conference. You won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. It, it, it <laughs> seems like he is now making a more definitive break with politics and, and, and turning to the law as his uh, as his occupation.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, it's it, it, it's strange in a lot of ways because you you think that after a loss that bad, I mean, you know, he, he I mean depending on how you, you know, on, you know, what you've read about the 60 election, what kind of theories you, you know, theories you buy into, or, you know, what kind of scholarship you, you, you know, um, you know, you know, you find to be credible and whatnot. You know, a lot of people made the argument that Nixon should have been president in 1960 and that because of, you know, some magic vote counters and in, in Chicago and Texas and, 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 you know, those, and the ballot box wizards and whatnot, he got, you know, Uh, screwed out of the out of the White House. Now, I mean, you know, that's, that's one of those things that like a lot of historians have waited on. And some have said, you know, that there's truth to that. Some have said that there is no truth to that. But you know, I mean, the controversy was still present to the fact that, you know, you you could reasonably make a case, you know, even back then that Nixon should have been president in the 60s. So to go from that, to then, you know, losing really badly, um, you know, in your own home state, uh, to a guy who, you know, wasn't, I mean, Pat Brown is, is was a very formal politician, a very you know, well liked you know person in, in California. But if you compared him, if you compared someone of his caliber to someone like Nixon's caliber, especially considering that back then the Republican Party was very powerful in California um, as opposed to now, um, you know, it, it was almost unthinkable that Nixon could even could lose a race like that, let alone lose it pretty badly. I mean, he lost by like you know several several percentage points. So, you know for the and then for him to then get on stage and deliver this really, you know, nasty, um, ungracious, um, you know, peevish uh press conference where he's taking out his anger on the press, blaming them for, you know, not treating him fairly. You know, he has his hands in his pocket the whole time. He's you know, some people said that he was hungover because he had been drinking all night. Um and, and, and then you know, saying, oh, you're not going to have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore because this is my last press conference. I mean, you know, if if you wanted to end your political career in a blaze of glory and, and make sure that, you know, you never had to run for office again, that's pretty much the way to do it. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, I don't I don't think, you know, I mean, you know, they, they, they call it burning a bridge. I mean, you know, you could argue he just dropped a bomb on it. I mean, I don't I don't I don't know how you come back from that. Um. And so the fact that he was able to come back from that, though, is, you know, makes it even more impressive because, yeah, I mean, and and the book goes into a little bit. I mean, he, you know, there were there were a lot of there were a lot of um, other concerns that he had as far as, you know, what he wanted to do with his time and whether he really even wanted to run for president in 1964, which is which was a general assumption, Um, you know, whether he needed to, like, kind of find a find a job to lay low for a little bit. Um, And still, you know, a job that would allow him to still travel the world and still kind of act like a statesman and still be in the public eye without being pressured to run against Kennedy again in 64. Um, And so ultimately, you know, you know, uh, joining a law firm and moving to New York was 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 turned out to be the right move for him just because it allowed him to it allowed him to kind of um, make a lot of money, which, you know, he had. He had always been poor growing up, and he had been on a government salary for so long. So, you know, he was able to make some money and able to do that. But then also just show that he could um, succeed in, you know, you know, in that big corporate world on Wall Street and whatnot. And you know, while without without then being drawn into like you know constant constant speculation over whether or not he was going to run for president again, which still occurred, but you know because he had his plan in place as far as being able to um to work in New York and, and and be a lawyer at this firm that was uh something that allowed him to kind of tread water until until 1968 came along
0: the fact that he went back to uh work in the law was it was understandable but he undertakes this move from California all the way to New York could you yeah. perhaps explain why it was he decided to undertake that uh, radical of a shift? Because when he uh, lost 1960, he went to a California legal firm. He sure. was maintaining uh, his his connections in California. And it seems to be such a, a break. And, and, and as you explain in the book, it's one that he kept uh, uh, mentioning to people as Proof that he was giving up on politics or so why undertake that? Was it reflection of that desire to try to at that moment to wash his hands of politics or was there a, a, a deeper consideration going on?
1: I mean, you know, one, one, and that, that that's sort of the, the, you know, the big question about Nixon is like, did he really, really? You know was it a case where he really thought that he was finished with politics or was it a case where you know he he wanted people to think that he was done so but then um you know if 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 the time if the time and place emerged when you know either the political landscape will become more hospitable for him or you know, the party would like beg him to run again, and he would magnanimously <laughs> decide, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll run for the good of the country and the good of the party. You know, uh, that that's sort of the eternal question with him is like, how much of it was genuine, how much of it was calculated? Um, you know, based on based on you know, um, based on the lawyers, the the, the lawyers that I, and the people at the firm that I, that I spoke with, and just what you know they had spoken and what they had said about you know about him to like other authors and reporters over the years. They were definitely under the impression that he was done. I mean, you know, the the whole reason why he moved back to California after he um, after he uh, left Washington uh, after his after losing the presidential race to Kennedy was so he could, um, you know, still make because his political base was still in California. He thought he needed to uh, be in the state in order for him to, you know, still be a viable candidate for for the presidency. And you know he 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 had it in the back of his mind that he would run for governor as a way to so that he would have elective office, have a have a have a platform that he could then use to um to to launch another bid for the presidency. And so then when that blew up, um you know there wasn't really much of a reason for him to stay in California. And you know he talked a little bit about this in interviews and whatnot. You know he had never had a whole lot of love for California. Um he he had you know other than other than growing up there and. Um, and, and, and and living there very briefly as a, as an adult, you know he had spent most of his he had spent most of his professional life in Washington D.C. You know he, the East Coast was where he wanted to be. You know he felt like that was the big league, so to speak, where you know where all the big money was, where all the big players were all the big you know heads of state when they were coming to uh, to DC uh, when they were coming to DC or coming to New York to go to the UN that's where they would you know that that's where he wanted to be so you could see them or you know speak with them or whatnot um, so New York was kind of seen as like the place where he had to be in order to um, to prove himself and also to stay in the public eye and but what made it what made it even what made it even more unthinkable was that you know New York was very much the fiefdom of Nelson Rockefeller which was his who was his biggest his biggest rival in the party um so the fact that he would go to New York um under Rockefeller's thumb um you know that 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 pretty much confirmed to a lot of people well there's no way he's going to run for president again there's no way he's going to be a politician because he's not going to go to New York and steal Rockefeller's base from under him i mean Rockefeller Pretty much owns the city of New York. Um, I mean, you know, if you've ever been in New York, you know there are tons of things named after him and his family. So, um, so, so, so the idea that 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 he was going to New York and and that he was going to, you know and rockefeller's you know backyard i mean they actually lived in the same building which is kind of strange but um that that kind of that kind of confirmed to a lot of people that oh well he's 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 finished he's never going to run for president again he really is just going to be a lawyer and, and maybe maybe one day you know maybe he'll be secretary of state or something under a republican president but he's done as far as as far as his political career and that's you know that that uh, you know just based on you know the people that I spoke with and the the research that I did and, you know, just the research that was already available, you know, it's pretty clear that he still wanted very much to be president, but he didn't want to be seen as the guy who, you know, didn't know when to quit, you know, didn't know when to like, stop grabbing for the ring. Um, you know, there's a line in the book about how, you know, it's always a more compelling narrative to be, you know, to, to, you know, to be, you know, to be in a situation where people are begging you to run again as opposed to being the guy that just, you know, didn't know when to quit. And so I think that was playing on his mind as well.
0: What was uh, his appeal to prospective legal firms that, uh, where he might find a perch and how was it that he was uh, ultimately hired? Who, who was it that, that, that eventually uh, brought him on board? Sure.
1: Well, um, and, and you know, I mean, the the, 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 the law firm world now, especially in New York, um, it's still very similar to the way it was uh, back when you know Nixon was hitting the market, uh, you know, uh, in the '60s. You know, it, it's you know it's very much a follow the leader kind of kind of culture there, in, um, especially on Wall Street. You know, if, if if one if one big firm does something, all the other firms <laughs> try to follow suit just because they don't want to they don't want to um, lose out on prospective clients, they don't want to lose out on prospective attorneys. Um, and so what happened was, um, you know, one thing that law firms, um, you know, thrive on, well, one thing that their lifeblood is, is, is business. You know, they need business from, they need, they need, they need business from, from top clients. They need like a steady stream of work. Um, you know, if, a if a big firm has a, has, has a major client, like, you know, like, like Chase national bank or, you know, like a major oil company or why not, they can get all kinds of. Work for their for their attorneys in the firm, you know, ranging from litigation matters to uh, transactional matters. You know, if you know if if a bank has like, um, you know, like a, or, or like you know if if a company wants to merge with another company, you know, they can take care of those kind of matters. Uh, any kind of like employment matters that come up. So you know, these kind of so 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 these kind of clients that have that can provide lots of work and lots of money and lots of billable hours to lawyers, um, especially in New York, they're like, they're like gold, you know, (laughs) if you, if you have, if you have, if you have like a good group of, of loyal clients that will like give you all of their as much work as possible, uh, and keep it, keep everybody, you know, happy and keep everybody busy. That's, you know, then you're set. Um, and so what a lot of law firms in New York, I mean, well throughout the country, but especially in New York, because uh, most of the big firms were located or headquartered in, in in New York City, so what a lot of them did was that they would hire like a big name, uh, a big name partner it was they 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 called it a public partner, somebody who kind of be the face of the firm, uh, someone who had a lot of connections, someone who you know could call up any 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 business person, any CEO, any you know chairman or chairwoman or whatnot, and and, and get that call returned immediately. Um very often it was a powerful politician, uh somebody who, you know, either you know had decided to leave politics, had been defeated for re-election, or you know, just wanted to transition and do and, and do something where they would make some money. So like one of the, you know, one of one of the one of the best examples was uh Thomas Dewey, who was a uh, governor of New York for, for many years. He ran for president twice. He almost defeated Truman uh famously. Um and so so after he after he left the governorship after failing to uh, become president, he went out. He, he 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 joined a Wall Street firm. He served as the face of the firm. You know, whenever whenever anything happened with the firm, they would always refer to it as Thomas Dewey's firm. You know, he was always out in the front. You know, um, um, because he because he was a, he was a well known person. He was uh, he had like uh, you know he knew a lot of reporters. You know, he, he had a lot of influence. Um, whenever, whenever anything happened with that firm, you know, it was identified as Thomas Dewey's firm, and you know, this is who he is, this is what he's done, and very often he would be out in front, just like you know, um, you know, uh, getting business for the firm and whatnot. So that was sort of the model that a lot of um, law firms were trying to emulate. This idea of having this this magnet for business who would just draw in clients, who you know, who would just draw in like attention, uh, who would you know, be able to promote the firm but also, you know, be able to, to, um, you know, to actually like, you know, you know, not just, not, not just someone who would just be like a pure face of the firm, but someone who could actually take part in like, you know, um, you know, possibly or you know, running the firm, you know, um, maybe even working on some cases and matters and whatnot. So this, so the firm that Nixon went to was a firm, um, was a firm called mud stern, Baldwin and Todd. They were, um, a lot of a very prominent firm on wall street, but they had kind of fallen on some tough times. They had some, um, you know, some of their some of their partners uh, that they'd relied on for many years, you know, had either retired or, you know, they had died because of old age. Um, so they had like kind of, they were sort of in a transitional period where they weren't really sure, um, you know, what kind of firm they were going to be, who was going to be the one calling the shots, who was going to be the one bringing in the business and whatnot. So they were kind of stuck. They had a very unflattering nickname on um, on Wall Street. Uh, They were called Mudge, Sludge, Fudge, and Don't Budge because they were seen as as a firm that was kind of stuck in neutral. So Nixon appealed to them because he's a guy who, you know, he knows pretty much everybody. He he knows everybody in Washington. Um, He had a lot of like very wealthy, very well-to-do business friends who uh, were looking out for him and, you know, were, you know, hoping to, you know, hoping hoping to, you know, hoping to take advantage of the fact that, you know, he could – Still, one day, possibly, you know, be president or be some be somewhere, you know, in 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 the White House as, as, or in the executive branch is a very powerful person. That you uh, know, very powerful person. So, so you know, he's someone he had a deep Rolodex um, of business contacts. Um, he's someone that if you called, you know, if you called and left the left a message, you know, he would get that call. He would get that call returned, um, and so he was exactly what they were looking for. And so. Um, what happened was, um, um, you know, one of his good friends was, uh, this man named Elmer Bobst, who was, um, um, he, he was a pharmaceutical king and his, his company was one of the biggest clients at Mudge. And he he basically told the leadership in Mudge that you have to go get Richard Nixon. He's the guy that he's the guy that you need to to take you to the next level. And so you know over some co- over some cocktails on the golf course, as very often that's how things were. That's how things were done back then. They they hammered out a deal, and and, and 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 he became the head of the firm.
0: Did Nixon do very well out of this deal? Was it based upon his ability to deliver, or did he have something coming up front?
1: Uh, I mean, well, he he. Because um, you know, nowadays, um, uh, you know, nowadays, I mean, a lot of law firms are, you know, eat what you kill. You know, you, you get paid based on how much business you bring in. Um, even even then, there are exceptions. I mean, some some law firms now they're they're giving out big guarantees to to lawyers to entice them to come over. So it's kind of a, it's it, it's kind of a a mix of that. Um, with Nixon, they they guaranteed him a they guaranteed him um, you know uh, a salary of about of around two hundred thousand dollars, like up front. Uh, which you know back then that's that that was that was a small fortune back then and certainly more money than he'd ever seen, um, and he also had other money coming in from like you know his royalties, his book royalties, and like you know things along those lines. But um, it was but as far as um, um, you know uh, the money that he made uh, like from the firm, you know he he got most of it up front, like most of it was 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 guaranteed to him, um, but. Uh, the business that he brought in more than justified that. I mean, like the biggest, the biggest client that he brought in right off the bat was Pepsi, uh, because he had a close relationship with the chairman of Pepsi. Um, there, there was a fair, there was a very famous story of where, um, when Nixon, Nixon was vice president, he traveled to the Soviet Union to take part in, you know, one of those like cultural like summit meetings and whatnot. And he and uh, the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev were touring like an American style, uh, exhibition and, and, um, um, Khrushchev, you know, started making comments about like the superiority of communism as opposed to capitalism. Nixon kind of shot back a little bit and, and the two of them got into a, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a real debate as far as, you know, (laughs) like, you know, like a formal debate as far as like moderators and whatnot, but it was a very spirited conversation about, you know, uh, why, why, you know, why one system was better than the other. And, you know, it was, it was a, it was a public relations coup for Nixon because, um, the, you know, the photographer, you know, the, you know, at the time he was still vice president. So he wasn't president yet. He was on the way to running for president that showed that he could, you know, he could, he could hold his own with like, um, you know, the big, the big, you know, leaders of the world and Khrushchev you know, always had a reputation as being kind of a bully. You know, he had that, you know, <laughs> he had the the, um, the shaved head. He had that menacing kind of demeanor. So you know, the fact that he was able to stand up to Nikita Khrushchev, you know, made him look really good. And where Pepsi came into it was there was a Pepsi exhibition at the at that at that um at that uh, at the event that they were at. And so um, Nixon actually at one point got Khrushchev to drink uh, Pepsi, um, you know, from the display. And so that was a that was a big deal for um uh for the for the company uh because you know at that point they're still you know i mean you can argue they're still second fiddle to coke as far as market share and whatnot so they were looking for any little edge that could you know that could that could you know um help them as far as like closing the gap so so that was a that was a big you know win for them and that allowed them to eventually make like a um you know an, an exclusive deal with the soviet union as far as pepsi goes so Pepsi was so grateful to Nixon for his part in doing this that at um that when Nixon was looking for looking for uh you know what firm he was going to go to uh Pepsi made it clear whoever 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 hires Nixon they get us as a client and you know Pepsi is one of those clients that has like you know all kinds of work that you could that you could bring in for for lawyers um you know they're a great client to have one that you know law firms today would still fight over So the fact that he had that he had that like, you know, client willing to like follow him um, to whatever firm he went to as far. And he had some other ones, too. But, you know, clients of that of that magnitude and that prestige and that, um, you know, clients that were that well known that were willing to follow him to whatever firm he went to made him a very, very attractive candidate for for law firms and really. You know, paid, you know, like paid, you know, paid for himself as far as like whatever, whatever money that the firm was giving him up front.
0: One of the most fascinating passages uh, in your book for me was your description of how this work changed Nixon. How you you quote this one person who came across from the street and how he just seemed so much more at ease with himself. He seemed more relaxed. It seemed that he had found this this very comfortable uh, place in his life.
1: Sure. I mean, which and it's also weird because um i mean if if um you know just 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 any any biography of nixon or any any you know any kind of study of him you know it, it's pretty clear that he was not very comfortable um in that world as far as he he was very distrustful of of the so-called eastern establishment um, you know, in the White House, you know, when he was there, he had uh, there were all kinds of transcripts and all kinds of exchanges that he had with people where he would just go off on, you know, the Harvard, the Harvard bastards or you know, <laughs> you know, people like that. Um, so the idea that he could thrive on Wall Street, which is which at that point was and it still is crawling with, you know, Ivy League. Ivy League graduates, people who went to Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law, Yale Law, Columbia Law. I mean, the fact that he could thrive in, under those circumstances is pretty impressive, just considering what we know about him. Um, and it and also kind of it kind of it, it kind of shows how how you know he was able to kind of compartmentalize, um, you know, the kind of person that he was and the way he thought, just for the sake of his clients, for the sake of his law firm. But um, I mean, yeah, someone like that, um, I mean, someone with so in order to survive on wall street he 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 would have had to adapt otherwise uh he wouldn't have been able to uh, bring in bring in the clients that he did he wouldn't have been able to bring in the um he wouldn't have been able to he wouldn't have been able to recruit the top talent because that was the other thing that was that they were bringing him in for because um you know, one thing that the top law firms in, in in the country but especially back then in new york they were always competing against themselves competing amongst themselves for the best law students, um, the best, um, you know, the cream of the crop, you know, people coming from Harvard law, uh, Yale law, Columbia law, the really, really, you know, top students who, you know, you know, were the real, like, you know, gems of their classes and whatnot. And Nixon was someone who, even if you didn't agree with his politics, even if you didn't like him, even if you thought that he was, you know, not a very good person or not someone that you would want to sit down and like have a beer with. He's still someone that you want to meet and someone that you would want to talk to is because, you know, how often do you get to <laughs> to talk to someone like that? I mean, in your, in your, in your, in your day to day life. So that was, that was, that was another way that he helped the firm just, he was able to, you know, to kind of attract a lot of people that ordinarily wouldn't have considered, um, much, uh, as, as an option just because, you know, they were a good firm, but they weren't the very top of the heap. So, um, he was able to bring in people that ordinarily wouldn't have
0: considered the firm. So he's involved in this legal work, and yet you have this description of his office, his corner office, which, which, which is suggestive that he has you know, never really – he hasn't really abandoned his politics at any point. You, I, I love your description of it as sort of a, a presidential museum-in-waiting. No. <laughs> he has he has he has all these you know uh, all these uh, chashkis and 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 uh, and uh, gifts that he received when when he was vice president that that are that are decorating his office that are harkening to that time and it, you you describe how you know even in the early his early years of the firm 1964 1965 he is still very much involved in politics
1: yeah I mean and and, and that that's sort of the giveaway as far as his intentions because um, one one thing that was one thing that was kind of stunning to me, um, just in, in doing this research, was when he first got to the firm. He was, whenever anybody asked him, a reporter or whatnot, asked him about his political intentions. He was clear: like I'm done. I'm not running for anything. I'm never going to run again. That's it. Like you know, you didn't you didn't get the nowadays. And every politician is like, well, I I I I don't foresee any circumstances where I would be a candidate again, or I don't you know, or you know, I don't I I don't I don't see how. How how at this moment you know that I'd be interested in doing this like so there's all kinds of equivocation all kinds of you know double talk all kinds of contingencies like oh you know to kind of leave the door open in case they change their mind uh but with him it was definite it was like I'm done there's no way I'm running again you saw what happened you saw what I did on that stage um, <laughs> nobody's ever going to vote for me again and I'm sick of it so I'm not going to do it um so but but then you see this other side where. You know his office, where he clearly, you know, hasn't let go of his dream. I mean, you know, he, um, I mean, one, you know, one, you know, the office was, was was kind of like grandiose on design because it was a way to kind of impress clients and a way to, you know, kind of elevate himself as far as, you know, to distinguish himself as someone who wasn't just another lawyer on Wall Street. Uh, but it also shows that he hadn't really let go and he hadn't uh, given up on his dream and. Other, and, and Plenty of plenty of lawyers at the firm caught on to that. I mean Leonard Garment uh, who became uh, his closest friend of the firm and someone who Ended up becoming a White House counsel and you know was one of his closest aides um, He picked up on that immediately. He said he said this, this is a guy who's clearly gonna run again and you know, even though Garment Described himself as a Democrat someone who voted for Kennedy and someone who you know as recently as you know a couple of year, like a year or so before uh, before um, uh, before meeting Nixon had, had had held a fundraiser for Robert Kennedy so I mean this is not someone that would naturally gravitate towards Richard Nixon but he he sensed that Nixon was gonna run again he knew that something was up so he kind of glommed on to him um, and you know, in the hopes that you know uh, he was in the hopes that if 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 something did happen and Nixon did decide to run for president again so and, and he did win then there'd be something in it for him um, and there were a lot of lawyers who, 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 uh, and people who worked at the firm who came to that same conclusion that, you know, this is someone who clearly has not given up on his dream. This is someone who, you know, at at some point is going to run for president again. And if things go right, he'll be in the white house and it would be good for us to kind of get on that train early. And, you know, his actions in 64 and 65 just pretty much cemented that. I mean, 64 was, um, you know, a terrible year for Republicans. Um, you know, Barry Goldwater got, you know, got destroyed in a in a in a in, a, in, a, in, in one of the one of the biggest landslides in in uh, American political history. Uh, but you know, there was Nixon working really hard for him, campaigning, you know, nonstop throughout the country, taking time off from his law practice uh, to campaign for him and go and, and and not just campaign for him, but campaign for all the down ballot Republicans who were who were worried that being on the ballot with someone like Goldwater would, would, would be bad for them and and cause them to lose. Um, and so by doing that, then he, you know, he, he, he ended up, you know, accumulating a whole lot of, a whole lot of chits that he was able to then cash in, uh, when he decided to run for president four years later. Uh, but, you know his 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 actions clearly demonstrated that that uh you know that was what he wanted to do and that was what he was planning on. Um, and sixty five was 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 another good example because that wasn't an election year. Um, I mean, there were a few races that year, but that wasn't one of the big one of the major election years. But there were two like you know New Jersey had a had a gubernatorial race and Virginia had a gubernatorial race, and he inserted himself into both races. Um, you know even though. There was really no reason for him to do it because it was um you know as uh, you know like it was an off year and nobody else was running and whatnot but he 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 inserted himself into both races to help the republican candidate and you know uh and, and in both cases his his candidate lost but he was able to uh come out of it with um you know with with with, with you know his, his his reputation enhanced at least amongst republicans not maybe not necessarily the <laughs> the general public but <laughs> But uh, but he was able to um, you know ingratiate himself even more with Republicans and, 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 and test out some some themes that he would use when he did run for
0: president. It, it, it was the Virginia and New Jersey contrast that you set up that I thought was really fascinating because you illustrate how it really was a win-win for him. He could go into a race like that of Virginia and uh, campaign for uh, the candidate who, as you point out, while he lost in 65, he, he ends up winning uh, down the road and, and he and he gets credit for helping to boost the candidate. And then you have a New Jersey where you have a candidate who uh, takes a, a, a he gets it, it gets he intervenes in the whole Case involving uh, Eugene Genovese, and while he loses badly to the Democratic incumbent, none of that sticks to Nixon. He can easily point to the candidate, and say, "Well, you know, that's him. I did my part as as the as the uh, loyal warrior," and, and it, it 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 points to the the the, uh, the the you know the benefits he has of that position that you've outlined to that point where he's there, he, he's he's involved, but he is not. You know, tainted with any sort of of, of involvement with it. And, and going back to 1964, he has the added advantage that all the potential contenders uh, that he uh, was going to face down the road who were prominent that year, people like Bill Scranton and uh, and uh, Nelson Rockefeller, would have nothing to do with Barry Goldwater. So Nixon gets all the credit from the people who supported Goldwater and none of the blame for helping to torpedo uh, Goldwater's candidacy.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and he was smart. I mean, he picked he picked his battles correctly. I mean, one I mean losing. I mean, you never want to lose in a big landslide like the way Goldwater did. But one of the one of the um, the benefits of that was that you know when, when it, every time you have a landslide of that magnitude, there are always a bunch of candidates who win, um, you know, who got carried by the coattails by Johnson's coattails in the, in this case. Um, that maybe it, 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 they win, and maybe but maybe in other years they wouldn't have won. You know, or maybe their districts you know weren't necessarily in line with their views but because you know they got caught up in the in the Johnson landslide or you know they were afraid of goldwater and whatnot they just happened to swing to the other party just that you know that one time and so he he identified a bunch of these a bunch of these candidates um you know in in 65 and also in 66 uh when he you know circled the circled the country to campaign for congressional and gubernatorial candidates he 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 identified like races where you know, if if there was if there was a seat in uh, if there were seats in Michigan, for instance, that had been Republican for decades or years, but then swung to the Democrats by you know very small percentage points because of Johnson or because of Goldwater, um, then he would go in, campaign really hard for the Republican, and then chances are the Republican would have won the race anyway because you know chances are the district was probably more naturally suited for a Republican candidate or for you know that particular candidate, but. Um, he would go in. He would campaign hard for them, and then when that candidate won, then it'd be oh, it was because Dick, was because Dick Nixon was here and he helped me. Um, whereas, like, so, like, like, like in the case with like you said, like you said with with New Jersey, you had a guy who was going to lose anyway, a guy who um, was not was not a very was not a very good candidate, but um, but Nixon came in, um, got a little controversy for his comments about about like like you said with the uh, professor Genovese, Um and you know, he had made comments about. He made comments that were perceived as being anti-anti-American uh, during the Vietnam War and whatnot. Uh, he's like, I well, I welcome a North Vietnamese victory or something. It was something like that. Um, um, and and and, uh, and 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 so what happened was, yeah, that candidate was going to lose the race anyway. But Nixon came in, got a lot of, it got him a lot of free publicity, got him a lot of uh, notoriety for that, um, you know, for what happened. And 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 he was also he took a lot of heat for attacking a, attacking a tenure professor the way he did uh but then he was also kind of able to spin that and test out a lot of his uh, uh test out a lot of themes that he would that he would use in 68 talking about you know uh we can't have unrestrained unrestrained uh liberty because you know in, in uh, otherwise you know it, um you know there has, there has to be a there has to be a balance between between liberty and license there has to be uh in, in wartime you know, we, uh, you know, um, um uh, there's the responsibility to, uh, to, to protect the country and, and, you know, protect the constitutional principles that it was founded on it and things along those lines. So he was able to, um, you know, kind of test out a lot of those lines and see what would work, what didn't work, um, and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, he, he, he was very good at, at doing that and, and picking his battles and, and, and figuring out
0: which, which races to intersect, to, to intercede in. And... and- one of the things that comes across during that that period of his life is how he, to see it as legal work versus political work. It, it's not necessarily an either or situation. Oftentimes, it, as and it, this is something I think that that you're uh, you know what you described in sixty three sixty four also illustrate well. It's an and also, and, and I think that nothing uh, demonstrates that intersection best than this uh, remarkable episode where Nixon. Represents uh, one of his firm's clients before the United States Supreme Court. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about that case and how it was that uh, Nixon, who had not previously been involved with it, ended up uh, pleading before the uh, Supreme Court for it. Sure
1: um, well, so that case was uh, it would end up being known as time versus Hill. Um, what happened was uh, there were these th- there were these um, convicts who escaped from from a prison in Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> and, 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 it's actually pretty, it's actually pretty funny how they were able to escape, you know, they, you know, there, 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 there was like, um, it's, it's like what you would see in a movie, you know, they would, uh, they lowered themselves out of their cells with their bed sheets. They, they had like a, they had like a ladder that they had fashioned out of like pieces of metal that they had, that they had accumulated from over the, from, a, from, you know, from whatnot that, that they were able to use to climb over the wall. I don't know why. I don't know how like the wardens and, and guards were able to like overlook the fact that there was like this makeshift ladder in the prison yard, but whatever. <laughs> um, um, uh, and so, so yeah, these, yeah. So you had these, you had these convicts escape from prison. They, um, they're on the lam and they're looking to lay low before they you know leave town. And so they go to this house, uh, that they just, they just, they just pick a random house. Um, they they break in and hoping to kinda of steal some steal some money, steal some, you know, clothes and whatnot and 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 maybe steal a car and get out. Um so the home that they picked was you know the 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 family happened to be home. So they had to hold 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 this family hostage in, in in their own home for several hours before they could they could escape. Um and so it obviously ended up being like a very it was a very compelling story. Um it was something that um You know, playwrights wrote about it, novelists wrote about it, It, uh, you know, it it inspired a movie, um, because, you know, there was something very compelling about that narrative. But as far as like the actual event in question, it was it was kind of it was kind of uneventful as far as, you know, what happened, like the you know the the convicts were there uh they treated the family very very humanely. they didn't threaten to kill anybody or threaten to you know <laughs> to to beat up any, anybody up or shoot anyone or assault anyone or things along those lines and then they just escaped with the car and that was that and then they eventually got caught but um you know that's you know that that that's a nice story but it could be you know it could be a little sexier it could it can be a little you know it could be a little um you know jazzier for uh, for public consumption so when so when novel so when you know uh someone wrote a novel about like about like uh something you know about this about you know inmates who held um um you know uh, a family hostage at home they drew on they drew on they drew on uh, this event as one of the one of the inspirations but they also you know in some other some other uh some other uh, elements from other cases they fictionalized some elements they made it so there's more conflict so there was more you know there was more danger involved and they had like the family fight back and and, and retake their house hero, heroically because it's a you know that's 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 a that's a nicer story and it's more that's more um something that you would want to see a, um you know at a movie theater or whatnot so So what happened was this family, they were known as the Hills, um, they were, they were very upset when, when, um, when, you know, that book that was known as the desperate hours came out, um, and the desperate hours became a a play and a movie and whatnot. And so they felt like on the one hand, they had to relive this whole incident, the whole, you know, every time, every time, like, uh, you know, uh, they went to the, every time, every time they saw a newspaper, every time they passed a newsstand, every time they went to a bookstore, went to a movie theater or whatnot. So that was bad enough for them, but they also felt like, okay, um, what you know, what that, what the desperate hours portray wasn't close to what they had gone through. So they felt like not only were they um, being exploited, they were being misrepresented, um, and so they they got upset and they and they sued uh, Time Incorporated. Uh, which is the parent company of life magazine because life did an article um, about the play uh, for uh, for the Desperate hours where they you know tried to try to where, you know they they reenacted some of the scenes at, at, at you know outside the hills house and you know the hills are the hills um, accused them of, of, of trying to argue like this is exactly how it happened this is this is this is an accurate retelling of what happened and whatnot so they were like no that's a lie that's not what happened. Um, so, ordinarily, these kind of cases, you know, there's, um, you know, big law firms like Mudge wouldn't even get involved in a case like this just because um, they don't typically represent individual families, especially when they're, if they're suing a big company. But um, Nixon's, one of Nixon's law partners, uh, this guy Robert Guthrie, who was one of the heads of the firm, he was friends with um, um, uh, the family. So he agreed to take the case as a favor to them, and he assigned the case to Leonard Garment, who was one of their top trial uh, attorneys. And so Garment um, tried the case; he won, um, and you know tried a couple of the appeals as well, uh, and, and, and and whatnot. Uh, so after like several years of like maneuvering, uh, the case goes up to the Supreme Court uh, for review. And Garment could have; he would have been well within his rights to keep the case. Argue before the Supreme Court, and you know that would have made him—that would have made his career. I mean, many, many um, lawyers would have killed for a chance to, to 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 argue before the Supreme Court, especially on a case like this um, that had a, that had a lot of int- public interest and was well known. But what happened was he he came up with the idea of okay, I'm going to give this to Richard Nixon. Uh, you know, he had already become friends with Nixon at this point. He 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 very much wanted to. To be part of Nixon's reelection campaign and hopefully his presidential staff, um, and so he felt like if Nixon took this case, it would be a good platform for him to show a what a great lawyer he was, but also it was a way for him to kind of show that he was he was fighting for the little guy, like you know the the poor family that got that got um, you know uh, that got uh, uh, taken advantage of by this big media conglomerate. Um, and for someone like Nixon, who had long hated the press and had had a very bad relationship with him, that was a very that was a very compelling argument for him as far as you know someone who someone who never asked to be treated a certain way by the press and felt like felt like he was being dealt with unfairly so so Garmin gave him the case uh even though Nixon had never argued a case at the appellate level in his career um but Knowing, but knowing Nixon and knowing his reputation and knowing his his abilities, um, Garment Garment felt like Nixon would be a good person to argue the case. And he worked hard. He 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 memorized the entire case file. Um, you know, no one ever said Nixon was lazy. No one ever said he was a he wasn't a hard worker. And so he he learned he learned everything he could about the about the law regarding uh, you know uh, regarding it was a, it was an invasion of privacy case, but it, it touched on a lot of libel matters as well. Um, so he, he learned as much as he could about that whenever he would, he, would, you know, he was crisscrossing the country at that time campaigning for, for, uh, for candidates, but he, whenever he had a spare moment, he would, he would brush up on the law. He would brush up on his arguments. He would, you know, do do what he could to prepare for this case. And when he went to the Supreme court and he argued the case, he actually got a lot of good reviews from, um, not only justices, but also the media that, you know, he had long despised. Like, so, um, so, so he got a lot of, he got a lot of plaudits and a lot of praise for how he handled the case. Ultimately the case didn't go his way. Um, there was a lot of, there was was a lot of, there was a lot of maneuvering and, 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 and politicking, uh, that went on at the Supreme court between justices and whatnot that, that, uh, caused, um, that, that that caused what what would have been a win for him to, to, to become a loss uh, not not involving him but involving like other other matters and whatnot but he he definitely came out of, came out of the, um, he he came out of the whole matter with his reputation enhanced as someone who you know had proven that he could argue before the Supreme Court and, and demonstrated that he was someone who was a top lawyer and someone who uh, was willing to uh, to fight for the little guy. And so it was definitely uh you know a good thing for him as he, as he sought to run for president again
0: and he begins that career he begins that that, that run for uh, the presidency uh very soon after the nineteen six uh, the nineteen sixty six midterms you don't recount the uh election in full. You focus uh, uh, upon Nixon and also upon the role, his employment of the firm and the people within it. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, explain uh, to our listeners exactly how it was that uh, his firm contributes to Nixon's victory. Sure.
1: Well, I mean, law, law firms have a lot of resources at their disposal. And you know, the, the biggest resources are money and talent. And... As far as talent wise he had a lot of a lot of very bright very well-respected People at that firm that were that were helping him Um, uh, Thomas Evans who uh, was um, Who who would become managing partner of the firm? um, And who's and and actually his scholarship was I relied on very heavily because he was someone who was he, he he was documenting the um the the history of the firm and whatnot and and, and his interactions with Nixon and, and and things along those lines um so he um he um was someone who who Nixon relied very heavily on John Sears is someone who was, he was a lawyer at the firm um he uh would get, he would gain greater notoriety as um, in the 80s when he he, he was uh, Ronald Reagan's campaign manager uh during the 1980 presidential race um, and there were other other people at the firm. Like Leonard Garment was another person. Um, he also hired. Um, you know, the law firm allowed him to maintain a political staff. Uh, so you know, people that wouldn't be handling legal matters, but people who would just be handling uh, his his own personal and political matters. So he hired he hired William Sapphire as a as a as a speechwriter and researcher. Uh, he hired Pat Buchanan as a, a researcher and someone who you know would travel with him and 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 help him write speeches and whatnot. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a, another person that he relied on you know, was, uh, um, uh, Dwight Chapin who, um, you know, had a, had a background in advertising and was sort of his body man. Uh, but he was also employed, he was also employed at the firm. So, you know, the firm, you know, gave him a lot of latitude as far as the kind of people that he could bring in, uh, the kind of work that they could be doing that wasn't related to legal matters or firm matters. Um. But also, you know what 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 the firm you know, the biggest thing that the firm did was that uh, in, uh, in 1967 uh, they merged with um, uh, a small uh, municipal bond practice uh, that was run by John Mitchell. Uh, and what happened was John Mitchell was uh, another Wall Street lawyer, someone who um, had, had had done had, had done very well for himself on Wall Street by doing by pioneering the use of municipal bonds um, and the byproduct of that was that he knew almost every governmental official in in in, in, in the country because what he would do was that whenever whenever like a, a city or a state or municipality wanted to issue a municipal bond he was one of the go-to guys that um, that they would go that, 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 um, uh, for that practice and so he would come in with his firm they would they would draft uh, they would draft the bond documents uh, the offering documents they would um, they would you know check to see if they were legal and if they weren't they would write the law they, they would then like you know write you know write write like a draft proposal or draft legislation uh, that would, you know to, to then legalize it uh, sometimes they would set up agencies that would handle these kind of matters so they so so they so, that, so as a result he, he 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 pretty much knew everybody involved in politics and was someone that would, would be very valuable to have as a resource, um, you know, in, in undertaking a national campaign. Um, so, so that was, so, so, so the firm, you know, uh, by, I mean, they didn't bring him in for, for that reason. They brought him in for you know, financial reasons because you know, it was, a, it was, a, it was a thriving practice and his firm was, was making tons of money. But you know, the added benefit of that was that having him in the fold, then, um, then allowed Nixon to then, you know, to, to then, to then, uh, recruit him to his staff, and then once nixon you know once Mitchell got a taste of that then he he was he was in and and and, and he was the guy who helped who who really helped nixon win when the presidency in sixty eight
0: Nixon wins the presidency. He uh, then draws upon uh, several members of the firm to staff his administration. Mitchell, of course, becomes attorney general. You've already mentioned how Leonard Garment would subsequently become the White House counsel. How does the firm overall do during Nixon's presidency and do how do they uh, do in its aftermath?
1: Well, um, I mean, at at first they they did very well. I mean, this was this was Richard Nixon's firm Uh, that, that that's what they were known as. That's what people saw them as um and And that was pretty much what they'd wanted because they they were they were hoping that they could hitch their wagon to a star and you know once that star once that star took off and and you know went went supernova then that yeah they 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 were ready to reap reap the benefits um they became known as the firm to see on wall on Wall Street because they were they were richard nixon's law firm um, even though he was no longer affiliated obviously once he became president and mitchell left to become attorney general and several other members of the firm uh, took jobs in the nixon administration but for what for, you know rightly or wrongly they were seen they were seen as having access to the highest echelons of power um you know and 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 understandably so i mean you have two you know, uh um two, two former partners of the firm that were now basically running the country. <laughs> I mean you, you you can't ask for a better <laughs> you can't ask for better friends than that. But, you know, as is the case with, with a lot of these things, um, you know, there there the are ethical matters involved, politics gets in the way. Um so there, there were there were you know, it was a benefit and it was also a detriment to the firm because, you know, whereas they were able to increase their profile and, and use that to then attract Attract lawyers to 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 grow to grow their practices, to uh, grow their headquarters, to to bring in you know more people and more cases and more matters that would bring in more money. Um, having that kind of having that kind of heat on you also put a giant target on on your back. So there were a couple instances where they you know they um like if they if they if they want like a contract from the government people would immediately would immediately question that it's Like, oh no you only got that because you're friends with because uh you're, you know you're you're friends with nixon or your friends with, with mitchell and, and and they gave you that as a gift so you know anyone looking to make a political stink um trying to you know uh, against the white house or against you know Nixon. Whenever something like that happened, that was that was easy fodder for them. I mean there was there were a couple instances when there were a couple instances in, in the book where the firm had to either decline matters, or they had, to, or they took a matter, but then had to had to had to drop it because, because they were seen as as having, yeah, as as having you know, obtained that matter, you know, uh, 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 because of just because of their friendship with with um with the Attorney General or with the President. Uh, but overall, it was it was a net positive for um for for the firm um, you know it's a it's it, it's not necessarily a good problem to have but it's not the worst problem you know if <laughs> if if you know, if, if, uh, you know, um, if you're seen as the president's you know, if you're seen as you know the president's firm but then obviously you know when the president then um you know when he gets embroiled in scandal and he, and he's and his reputation takes a hit the way it did during watergate then that also reflected badly on the firm um you know the firm wasn't directly involved or you know, I mean, they weren't directly involved in in in, in you know the cover up or you know what happened with uh, with Watergate. There were there were there was enough of a taint there, and plus uh, it didn't help it didn't help the firm because Mitchell Mitchell then returned to the firm after the fir- after after um, after Nixon's first term, and he actually got indicted uh, while he was uh, while he was uh, at the firm. So you know that didn't help the law firm as far as his reputation went, even though. You know they weren't they weren't found to be involved in, 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 in what had happened uh, but that didn't that didn't um, help the firm as far as you know being able to recruit new lawyers uh being able to compete for cases being able to compete for 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 high profile matters and whatnot and so you know after after Nixon they then gets driven from office in disgrace, the firm went through a phase where they were not doing very well uh financially they were losing partners they were losing associates. Uh, they weren't being able to, um, they weren't able to compete for the, for, 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 you know, the the major clients and whatnot. A lot of, a lot of clients left them. Um, and so they were sort of back in the position they were at before Nixon joined, where they were kind of stuck in neutral and not really going anywhere.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not working on any books now um I, i'm still you know, as you can imagine this was you know this this was a pretty grueling uh, a pretty grueling process and one that um you know took up a lot of time and whatnot so i i don't have anything lined up so obviously if if, if um anyone listening you know has any ideas you know please feel free to reach out to me <laughs> um but uh you know i i am working uh, as an uh, as an assistant managing editor at the aba journal and we have a lot of a lot of things that are that, that we're working on um as far as um, podcasts, as far as um, articles and features and whatnot, I, I cover the business of law and technology. So, um, you know, very often uh, I'll, I'll I'll be writing things about things that that focus on on those areas or editing articles. One thing that one thing that we've been doing is we've been doing a um, a year long a year long um, look at cybersecurity because um, one thing that the legal industry is also known for, uh, is being averse to change, uh, not necessarily, not necessarily embracing technology or being very suspicious of it. And so, um, the series, uh, purports to educate lawyers about, about, you know, hacking cyber attacks, um, and, and, and things along those lines and what they can do to, to protect themselves and protect their clients from from becoming victims of, um, you know, I mean, because nowadays, I mean, anyone, anyone with a, you know, anyone with a computer, anyone with a, with an internet connection, you know, is, is potentially opening themselves up to all kinds of attacks from all kinds of people, all kinds of entities, and all kinds of information that could potentially go out the door and, or be used for all kinds of nefarious purposes. And so this series hopes, hopes to educate uh, lawyers and people in the legal industry about the need for the need for, you know, stricter vigilance. Uh, you know, uh, stronger protocols and stronger protections, um, you know, to to safeguard their their information.
0: Well, I do hope you can find some time to write another book because this one was very enlightening. Victor, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks a lot.